Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Oh, good morning. Uh, just bear with us a second as we set up. I do actually have notes today. I don't, I don't usually like to speak with notes, but this is kind of a, this is, look, this is a bit of a long lesson today, okay? So um, I just feel like I need a bit of a roadmap to give me a hand. That was a joke as well. It's not actually a long lesson, so. Okay, cool. All right. I'll just move this over a little bit to the center here. Get set up. Cool. Okay. Firstly, let me just piggyback off of Tim and say thank you for being here this morning. Welcome to Creekside, particularly those uh, who are new. Those who are new to this community, maybe those who are new to church, we're really thankful to have you here with us this morning. So I genuinely believe that God has called each and every one of us here for a purpose today. And so thank you for for listening to God and and fulfilling that purpose and being here. To the kids who are with us today, thank you for being here as well. It's a blessing to have kids in a church community. Kids are such a blessing And it's a blessing to have them in this service with us today, not the least of which because it will help to keep the message pretty short, right? Because we've got to be mindful of the kids. Parents, if you have young kids and they begin to make all kinds of noises as kids are wont to do, I want to just let you know that's okay, all right? It doesn't bother me, and so I don't want you to stress thinking that I'm stressed because it doesn't bother me in the slightest. Kids are awesome, and it's great to have them in here with us this morning. During this season of Advent, Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. And in an interesting coincidence, well, I don't really believe in coincidences, so maybe in an interesting intersection of unrelated events, we'll say, I decided early in November that I was going to observe all of the traditional holy days on the Christian liturgical calendar in 2022, something I've never done before. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a go. And so I did a little bit of research, and I discovered actually that the calendar actually starts with Advent. So if I wanted to do it correctly, I would need to begin by observing Advent in 2022. And this, Sorry, 2021. And this was before I was given the opportunity to speak to you today about this season of promise. And this is the second part of a series, and last week we were really blessed to hear from Tim Hanna, who talked to us about the promise of hope. And if you weren't here for that lesson, that's okay. Not because it wasn't a great lesson, it was exceptional, but because the very first thing that we're going to do this morning is just touch on a couple of the key points that Tim made in that sermon. Tim said of the promise of hope that hope requires a second birth. He said that hope is seen through fresh eyes. Hope is forged in life's bruisings. Hope leads to a consistent walk. And in a lesson of many wonderful truths, perhaps the most profound thing that Tim commented on was that hope is not a concept. It's a person. Jesus Christ. The Israelite nation, the Jewish people, from generations upon generations, really since the time that 
Abraham had entered into a covenantal relationship with God, a relationship that was bounded by and founded upon promise, had been waiting expectantly in hope for the promise of a Savior. And that's what we're going to explore a little bit this morning, this promise of a Savior and the appropriate response to its fulfillment by looking in some depth at a passage of Scripture from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, you can turn there now. The, screen, the words will come up on the screen. And the prophet Zechariah said this, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is righteous and having salvation, humble. Riding on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Will you pray with me as we begin? God, thank you so much for calling each and every one of us here this morning. I pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate your word to us and you would engrave it on our hearts as if it's etched in stone. For this season of Advent, Father, I pray, Lord, that we are able to lean into and look expectantly towards the hope that is Jesus Christ. And in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now I believe that any good discussion around any piece of ancient literature, the Bible included, should begin with a little bit of context. Because context helps us to understand the original intent of the message, as well as the how it was intended to be interpreted by its original audience. And so, looking at the book of Zechariah as a whole, it was actually set after the return of the Jewish people from their exile in Babylon. Now, after the Babylonian kingdom, some would say empire, led by Nebuchadnezzar II, conquered Judah, a large number of Jewish people were taken into exile. Not the entirety of the nation, but a significant number. Most scholars actually think it's around about 10,000 people. And many of the Jewish people taken into Babylon at this time blamed the tearing apart of their kingdom on their own impurity and their turning away from God as a people. And as such, within this exiled community, there was a great emphasis to restore right religious practice. To highlight this fact, many scholars actually believe that the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, uh, actually took its final shape during this period and became the central text to Judaism. Now, a couple of generations later, when the Persians, who were led by Cyrus, later given the epithet the Great, uh, granted the Jewish exiles their freedom to return home after they had conquered the Babylonians, many of them did. Though it should be noted that a contingent chose to remain in Babylon, as it was the only home they had ever known, because they had been there for generations. Now, Zechariah and Haggai, actually, who's another prophet, both prophesy over Israel, and they exhort the Jewish people to rebuild the temple, which had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in around about 587, 586 BCE. And Jeremiah, again, another prophet, had prophesied that Israel's exile would last for around about 70 years before the temple would be restored and the Messiah would come and reign over all the nations. And so Zechariah begins his prophetic ministry with the warning that the Israelite people must turn back to God and not be like their ancestors, really tapping into that 
sentiment of the returned exiles. And the Jewish people who had been living in Jerusalem during this period, living with a constant reminder of the destruction of the temple by the rubble that remained, began to ask Zechariah, should we stop grieving? Is now the time? Is God's kingdom coming soon? But Zechariah actually reverses the question. And he asks them, will you become, and I'm paraphrasing and summarizing here, will you become a people who is willing to participate in God's kingdom? And the main point of all of Zechariah's prophetic teaching is an invitation to look above the chaos of the fallen world in hope for the coming of a savior and God's kingdom. Let's turn our attention back to our text for a moment. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. I'm going to ask for a little bit of audience participation. Hands up if you know or if you have had any experience whatsoever with, with Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Oh, wow. Very cool. All right. Hands up if you know anything about Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Okay. Not, okay. Not many people. I must confess that until recently, my only exposure to Eastern Orthodoxy was a single episode of Seinfeld and my big fat Greek wedding. As a side note, all seasons of Seinfeld are streaming on Netflix. It's the best sitcom of all time. If you haven't checked it out, do yourself a favor. Also, my big fat Greek wedding, it's been out for like 20 years. If you haven't seen it, what are you doing with your life? It's a fantastic film. Getting back on track. I want to draw your attention for a moment to the two images of Christ that are foretold in this prophetic text. There's the image of Christ, the triumphal king, and the image of Christ, the humble servant. And I was doing some reading recently from a book called The Orthodox Church. An Introduction to Eastern Christianity by a guy called Timothy Ware. And there was a particular part of the book that uh, stuck out to me, and I'd like to share it with you now. The author writes this, Eastern Orthodox Christianity chiefly preaches Christ the victor and the cross as primarily an act of triumph over the powers of evil. The late medieval, post-medieval Western church advocates more often Christ the victim and views the cross in juridical terms as an act of substitution aimed at placating the wrath of God, end quote. Now, there's merits to both of these views, and neither of them is any more or less true than the other, as I believe this passage from Zechariah illustrates. So today, what I would like us to do is to maybe just take off our late, medieval, post-medieval, western, Protestant, evangelical Christian glasses, and maybe just put on the lens of Eastern Orthodoxy and talk about the first Christ here, right? Christ the victor, the triumphant king and savior of the nations. And the very first thing I'd like you to notice are how the first words of the opening three lines of this, can we go to the next slide, is that okay? The, the opening three lines of this verse call and demand some kind of action. 
Rejoice, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. Well, what does it mean to rejoice? It's a very Christian word, isn't it? I can't really think of any secular context in which I've heard the word rejoice used. But it means to celebrate, to praise, to show and to feel great joy. And it appears in our Bibles around about 248 times, give or take a few, depending on the translation that you're using. And doing a bit of a word study, I discovered that throughout the Bible, we are called to rejoice in creation, in all of our work, with our entire family, with our communities, in our blessings. We're called to rejoice in the sovereignty of God. We're called to rejoice over the destruction of the enemy, in salvation, in the love of God, in God's judgment. For the lost, when they are found, we're called to rejoice in truth. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, tells us to rejoice always. And Peter, writing in his letter, 1 Peter 4.13, says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. In all things, we are called to rejoice in Christ and to rejoice that Christ is in all things. Looking to the birth story of Jesus, when the Magi, or the wise men from the east, saw the star in the sky that signified the birth of the Jewish Messiah, their immediate response was, well, let's listen to the words of Matthew in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Matthew writes, When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. It's interesting that these men from the east, most likely Arabia, and very likely not of a Jewish background, came to rejoice and worship the infant Jesus. I'd suggest that maybe this was a significant foreshadowing that the Messiah had come not just to redeem the Jewish nation, but the entirety of humankind into his kingdom. Similarly, our recognition of the signs that our Savior has been born should stir up within us the desire to rejoice and joyously celebrate the salvation that we have through Christ and his victory over the powers of this world. To shout or shouting, it carries with it something of a mark of coarseness or unrefined behavior in our polite and civilized cor corner of the world, doesn't it? But this idea of shouting and rejoicing are almost inexorably linked throughout the Bible. In the Psalms alone, there's no less than 14 references to shouting with joy or shouting for joy. And Psalm 100 begins with the injunction that you see on your screen there, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. I'd like us to turn our attention for a moment to the prophet Isaiah. I know, another prophet, right? We've already talked about a few. In Isaiah 35, the prophet delivers a powerful vision of the future prospering of Zion, of God's kingdom. 
And I'd like to read the entirety of this chapter. It's only 10 verses. Sounds like a lot when you say you want to read a whole chapter, but it's only 10 verses. And to take, I feel like to take anything away from it or to try and extract anything from it, um, we really do need to read it in its entirety because it's so beautifully, poetically written. And so we're going to go ahead and start reading it now. And I want you to just kind of just kind of listen and absorb what Isaiah is saying here about the kingdom of God. School would not be happy. Okay. All right. Isaiah 35, 1 to 10. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. The Arabah was the desert plain or steppe. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of God. They will see the majesty of our God. Encouraged the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God will come, but he will save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of, its, in the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor any vicious beast go up on it. There will not be found there. But the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. With everlasting joy upon their heads, they will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. What a powerful vision of the kingdom of God. If I were to ask you this morning what the chief teaching of Jesus was, what would you say? Many of us might answer, love God, love people. And that is indeed central to the message that Jesus came to proclaim. And it's manifestly evident by the example of the life that he lived while on this earth. But if we were to ask Jesus, why did you come to this wretched earth? Why did you take on the naked vulnerability of human life? Why did you bleed out and die on a cross? Why did you lie in the darkness of the tomb, cut off from the Father? Listen to Jesus' answer in the Gospel of Luke 4.43. Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. Do you see? The kingdom of God is in our midst, and those of us who have given our lives to Christ are now called to rejoice and shout in joy and praise for our risen King. As Zechariah commanded the Israelite nation to behold, we are called to behold. What does it mean to behold? Well, it means to see, to really 
see. Often when I'm out on a run through Narangba, I'll be running and so focused on my lungs not exploding and my legs not giving out on me that I'll look to the left and to the right as I go to cross the road. And then I can't tell you how many times this has happened. I'll take a step and then only then will I notice that there's a car that's been traveling the entire time because my focus hasn't been where it should be, right? And I haven't actually seen Beholding means to see, to authentically see the true nature of the incarnate Jesus. Vulnerable, humble, shamed, and crucified. Yes, but also powerful, victorious, triumphant, and alive. I want to ask you this morning, is this the Jesus that you see? Christ the Lord of the kingdom of God. And I also want to ask you what the prophet Zechariah asked the Israelites. Will you become a people ready to participate in God's kingdom and serve under our Lord and Master, the triumphant Christ? We're going to sort of close now. And as we close, I invite you to join with us in communion. Now, hands up if you didn't grab one of the communion cups and you would like to join and share in this time. Someone will come and pass those along to you. I'll just get mine out. And as we take these emblems, which are symbolic of Christ's body and blood, I want us to do so with rejoicing and shouting in our hearts or with our voices. And to close our eyes and behold Christus Victor, or Christ the conqueror of sin and death. And in this season of Advent, recognize that we are no longer looking ahead to the coming of a Savior. Instead, we rejoice that unto us a Savior has been born. Let's pray, and then we'll share this communion for a couple of moments. God, thank you so much again for the opportunity that it is to be here, to be looking at your word, this divinely inspired word of, word of God. Lord, thank you for the messages that are contained therein, and we just pray, Father, that we would, through all of life's struggles, always turn first to the word and first to you. God, I ask that you would give us hearts to rejoice, that you would help us to shout with joy, Lord, and to truly see the risen King, Father, Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, while on this earth, he was lowly and humble, and his body was broken and beaten and nailed on a cross, and his blood was just so carelessly taken from him but God you raised him on the third day to majesty and Lord we are so blessed to be living in a time where we can look back on that event and we can be buried with Christ and we have the gift of your Holy Spirit Father for this community at Creekside thank you 
Thank you for each and every person here, Father. And I pray, Lord, that you would help them and help all of us as we go through life's journeys. And Lord, just bind us together with chains that can't be broken, Father. And Lord, help us to partake of these emblems, recognizing the sovereignty of your sovereignty and the lordship of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.